sudden like people are like, oh my god, and people are calling me and like agents and yeah, because I feel like the spontaneity disappeared because everyone's on their phones, so they're actually there and not there. And I just I think it's this ego thing. It's like a hand job. Like who's gonna get a bad picture on Instagram first? Like. Hello and welcome to Fashion Culture Design, the podcast with my guest this week, James Scully. Hi, James. How are you? Good. How are you? (laughs) Very well. Thanks. Nice to see you. So uh, I I like to start by talking about where we are. Now, this is a slightly intriguing room. Uh, Our friends at Neuerhaus have given us one of their conference rooms to record this. Uh, What does does this remind you of, James, this, this interesting space? It's very cozy. <laughs> it is cozy, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's like, actually, it's perfect. It's got soft walls and ceilings and curtains and all sorts. Ah, I feel very relaxed. Yes, yeah, so that's good. That's good. So, uh, James, you are a casting director. Um, I'd, like to, I, I, I'd like to start by talking about what does that actually mean? What a casting director is, basically, is um, I'm hired by either a designer or um, a fashion company or a brand. And basically, I work directly with them, especially on a fashion show level, to really come up with an idea for what their cast would be. So really it revolves around doing go-sees and editing out a group of people that I might think would be right for a particular client, and then I present all of these models to them, and then we do an edit, and that becomes a fashion show cast. And the process is very similar for a advertising and or television and all of them are, are pretty much linked and uh, social media online, all of that. So it kind of is all directly linked. But um, each designer, I would say, has a particular image or a feeling of what they'd like to project. So it's kind of like, you know, placing the right characters with the right Right, the right and, um, house. and you have to keep up to date with who's around. Yes, and then you also work a lot with the agencies. And again, depending on who your clients are, they may bring people to your attention prior to them, you know, kind of hitting the market to say that they think this person would be very important. Or, or a lot of times there might be a model who maybe has gone away for a while or is about to have a comeback and they just bring them to your attention to make sure that you get them at the right moment. And I think that from to, to people outside of the industry, they might look at that and think, well, that's a function. You know, the designer knows what they want. You get them the models, we're done. But actually, it can be much deeper than that. Because I get the sense when people work with, designers work with you, you build a re- relationship over many years, and you can start to help them shape the way their brand is going. Oh, you definitely help shape. Because, I mean, it's all about the perception of the brand. And if you've chosen the, the guys or the girls or the mixture who are going to be the faces of that runway show, that can have an incredibly strong effect. You do. You are, I mean, basically, uh, you know, especially now, um, working as close as you do, you definitely are shaping the, shaping an image or shaping, you know, who the person is for that brand. Yeah. So um, it's actually, it's more important than people actually think it is. And it's actually more difficult to do that than just going out and saying, oh, I think this guy or girl is great. It really does require yeah. a lot of viewing, a lot of research, a lot of, you know, knowing the DNA of a brand and the longer you work with someone, you're actually part of that whole growth. So yeah. you grow with them, and then that is what you bring to the table. So uh, let's go back. Where do you come from? Uh, South Amboy, New Jersey. Oh, okay. So fairly local. Local, but couldn't be farther away from New York <laughs> in terms of culture. Right, right. And when you were growing up, what did you think you'd do? I was very aware from a very young age that I wanted out of that town, that was for sure. I mean, I always knew about New York. I'd heard of New York. We always knew it was near, but I was a kid, so I'd never been. Um, when I was eight, I went to see my first Broadway show, and I decided that day that I was <laughs> that was it. I was coming to New York. At that time, I thought I wanted to be an actor, um, probably like every kid. Um, but I would say a few years later, fashion also piqued my interest 
equally. So I had as much love for theater as I did fashion. Right. But at the time, you know, especially in school and community, doing like school theater, community theater, that seemed like, it seemed like the thing I knew at the time until I realized that the fascist business actually existed in New York. I remember the first, um, again, the first fashion image that really was my awakening was, um, you know, just looking in the local newspaper and that was the year that uh, Saint Laurent had done the Russian collection and to see these pictures in the Sunday paper, you know, it was just three or four pictures, but to see, you know, and I was also fascinated with the world in general and Russia in general, but then just to see these kind of Russian clothes on Chinese and black women, like it Mm. just made me think there was a bigger world out there and like who were these people and this was very glamorous to me and I had to find these people. So that was... So what's that did you take then so how did you get out of jersey i would say you know, i well i mean the whole time uh after i went to the theater for the first time i had an aunt who was a big theater buff so from i mean the first show i saw was uh was pippin in 1972 so literally she would go once a month all the time like she always took me and my sister so like from 72 right, till right. forever there wasn't yeah. anything especially musicals that she didn't take us Fantastic. to see so yeah. i really was there for a golden age of broadway and um so i just the constant being in new york you know i just figured when i was old enough i would start going on my own so when i was uh you know when i was 14 a bunch of my friends were all like let's go let's go hang out in the city and then that was that was it we would go in every weekend saturday and sunday and we'd pick a neighborhood i would learn the streets and they would be on their own thing but in my mind i was already learning all of this because i was coming but still at the same time even though i was super interested in fashion theater was still my thing so when it came time for college i started to still apply for i applied for a theater uh program oh. at carnegie mellon i was and when a, you say theater as an actor as yeah as, right, a, as, a actor, as a as a you know then actually things are very different now but you could have made a living then as a theatrical uh you know, we used to call them chorus boys. So I'd have been very okay. happy to be a singer dancer on Broadway. Right, right. And um, but uh, the same thing. It kind of all happened at once. Uh, a neighbor of mine had given me a stack of Vogues, and of course I was tearing through them. And I saw an ad for a store called Charvari, and it really intrigued me because they it was the first ad for Yoji Yamamoto, and I was like, "What is this? And who is this?" And I really like was just fascinated by it. And <coughs> I thought, <laughs> next trip to New York, I'm going to find this store. I think it was, I was in 11th grade, and there was the first non-equity Broadway audition ever, and it was for Merrily We Roll Along. So, uh, me and a bunch of friends were like, that's it, we're going to audition, <laughs> we're all going to be, I mean, stupid little, di- you know, we're yeah, like, yeah. we're going to be stars, we're going to audition, Sondheim's going to discover us, and we're all, you know. <laughs> and uh, so we pulled up, and my friend's mother pulled us up in the van, and uh, I saw the line of like 7 million people, and I yeah. just thought but nine I have no voice I can't like what am I doing like I totally like freaked and her, uh, my friend's mother just said well you can all go to this audition you know we'll all meet at a certain time when you're done but um, I'm going to the Upper West Side and the one thing that stuck in my mind was um, Charvari was on the Upper West Side so she's like does anyone want to come with me so I was like I'll come with you and we all went <laughs> they went to the audition right and then uh, uh, I we went to Charvari workshop which had just opened and uh, and of course, then that was it. So then I really, like, theater was kind of yeah. done. From, at that point, I was like, this is where I want to be, and I want to work in this store. And uh, um, at that point, I'd already applied to... I was too late for FIT. I was too late for Parsons. I was too late for all of the schools. Yeah. And I'd already, you know, I mean, I'd had other acceptances in other places. And uh, a friend of mine who attends LIM had told me that... Um, 
every year they do one scholarship for a student based solely on an interview and nothing else. And that interview is next week. They're interviewing 10 people. I can get you on the interview. So I went, I took the interview. I didn't think very much about it. And then uh, three months later, when I was trying to figure out now, what am I going to do? Because I'm not really going to go to Carnegie Mellon. I don't want to, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do. My mother had told me that um, I got a letter saying I got in. So fantastic! All the money I was saving for a car, and then yeah, but uh, but yeah, I would say from like ninth grade, you know, eighty from eighty, I started hanging out. Eighty two, I started. That's when I started clubbing. So that was you know, right. I was hitting Danceteria and Funhouse and yeah, like, it's like that. There's a. It feels like there's a not a standard route, but a a fairly well trodden route. The amazing thing about New York at that time is that I mean, I would say from seventy seven till. So basically when Andy Warhol died, that was really the convergence of art, culture, theater, music, and yeah. club. You know, that all happened in those clubs. I mean, it really, yeah. that, it yeah. revolved around that entire scene. What do you think about fashion shows then versus now? Because I, when I was coming up, I was in London during the whole body map Galliano uh, era. And I remember sneaking into the fashion shows because that's what you did. And they were just wild. Yep. You know, they were singing and rolling around on the floor and they were they were an experience, every one of them. And you just never knew what to expect. And people criticize New York right now because you see, you know, a really effective, worthwhile collection, which is a progression from the last one from X given designer, which and there's nothing wrong with that. And it sells and they make a big business out of it and good for them. How do you feel the two compare? Well, they don't anymore because I feel like the theater has gone out of shows. Um, but even when you see, you know, a, a full brasserie recreated in the Palais Royal. Yeah, because I feel like the spontaneity d- disappeared because everyone's on their phone. So they're actually there and not there. And yeah. I really, you know, you, I personally, as a show producer and a person who, like, there's nothing more emotional than the team that works on a show from the designer to the design team to the, st- you know, everyone, mm. like everyone that is part of that to the music, per- like, you're yeah. there building a piece of theater. And, uh, you know, my old boss, Kevin Cryer, used to say that basically, you know, a fashion show producer is same thing as theater. Your designer's giving you their play and you're the play, you know, yep. you're put it, you know, and, and, you know, that's, that is what makes the whole thing fun. The teamwork of all of that, the really, the building, you know, deciding what the music is and the theme and who the girl yeah. is and, the, you know, and then to just have someone have, you know, a device in front of their eye in front of your show, like, how are you supposed to be emotional about that when you're just worried about like getting yeah. that bad shot for nothing? Yeah, and yeah. I personally, I find it disrespectful. What did you think about uh, Mark Jacobs' show? I thought that season? was incredible, and I hope more people do it because at the end of the day, no one died. It didn't ruin anything. Um, they got their shot after the show, yeah. so and people actually paid attention. That was the first time in ages I heard people say, "Oh my God, that was just." Yeah, for those so joyous. Like, cause you miss the joy. Like, you miss yeah. everything by not, you know, because you're just balanced on that thing. And it's and like I said, it's just such a disrespect to the designer and to everyone that has put all of their work into what is at the minimum half a million dollars. But when you're in the Marc Jacobs League or yeah. you know the Chanel League, those those are millions and millions of dollars. And but it's intriguing because when you look at what Mark did, and for for listeners, you should take a look at it online because. It was in the armory, so it's a colossal space where he always does his show, and he typically would do a huge build, etc. But this time there was no build, there was no music, there was no set, nothing, just two rows of chairs, and the models walked down in between them in silence, and there was a very strong um, requirement that no one took any pictures or did any social media during the show. 
which is fantastic. And people loved it. They yeah. totally enjoyed it. So I just thought, well, why don't you just do that? Why would that be so bad to do that all the time? Mm. Like, I think people would enjoy shows, and I think the uh, people would get more out of them again. I mean, most of those people in those audience know what it was like to not have a phone to show and really watch the show and absorb the entire yeah. thing. And I just, th- I think it's this ego thing. It's like a hand job. Like, who's going to get a bad picture on Instagram first? Oh, like, please. who are you doing it for? That's my yeah. big question. Like, you know, it's not like if you're a magazine editor, you get extra points for getting the, you know, not like your followers care. They're, they're taking professional shots for you and they're free afterwards. It's not like you have to try. Yeah, and, put, um, you know, anyone who really needs to go back, they're going to go to those websites. You know, let mm. those websites do it anyway. Go on Vogue.com yeah. and look at it later where it's a, they get the whole thing. But if, as an audience member, like, that's the same thing. You know, to me, to be like going on a date with someone and just having them like turn their chair on you and just not listen to a word you say or dine and dash on you or like, yeah. would you do that to your child? Would you go to your child's recital and then just like read right. a book? Because that is to me what it's like. It's like someone yeah. has just I shut mean, it's down. It's perplexing when you sit in the, if you're lucky enough to sit in the front row and the person next to you spends the whole time holding their phone up in front of you mm. so they can get a better shot of it. It's, and for what? Like I said, you lose the whole theater. Like I said, you're yeah. totally there, but you're not there at all. Mm. It's like, it's, I hate people that do it at concerts. I mean, I don't go to concerts anymore because I just can't. Yeah. I can't, like, I don't understand. Like, what are you trying to prove by showing someone that you were the, because, you know, again, it's a five second fleeting, like, and it's mm. gone. And in the end, you actually missed the whole point of what, you know. And like I said, I really, you know, I think, it's sad that people are missing the theater. And when people, you know, they're kind of like, oh, it's another show, it's another show. I was like, yeah, but if you actually sat and paid attention to them, yeah. you would enjoy going to them more. And, yeah, I, I was talking to Minal about this, um, about the fact that people have to go to fashion shows. And, you know, she said that she, like many other people, she has to see the clothes move. That's how she can make a decision on them. As a fashion editor, and I'm sure buyers are the same thing. Not, you know, if you need to see the still image, you can get that afterwards. But you've literally got to look at the actual clothing walking past you and see how it looks. And so how can you stare at your phone and do that? Yeah, and how can you digest the makeup and the, you know, and again, the music is such an emotional thing. Like, and the music is very important. You know, it sets the whole tone. So when you're really like, you know, you're just, that then becomes white noise because you're really trying to just stare into this thing and get. So I can see how how your background in in aspirations to theatre would be perfect for this so now you're in Charavari which is uh, it's the coolest store of the 80s and 90s um, for sure (laughs) and you're and you've got this enviable lifestyle so what was next um so then after uh you know I was there for eight years and I was kind of ready to move on and um uh Kevin Cryer who did our PR um he was he produced fashion shows so um uh, and he did Todd Oldham and he, you know, he had kind of all the big shows of that time and, uh, he was dying to hire me and I just, uh, at one point it's just like, uh, you know, someday I'm going to offer you a job, someday I'm like, yeah, well, whenever you call me, when, you know, stop telling me you're going to do this because I'm ready to go. And then one day he, you know, he called to hire me. So, so I'm just going to jump forward for a second because I think it's re- relevant to this. Um, you know, we're going to, we're going to come on to the, the sort of torch that you've been, you didn't take up because you've had it for forever, but as, as the, the spotlight that's on you right now, um, about inclusion mm. and, you know, the treatment of models, what was the experience like then? Cause it, you know, you feel like there was a lot of things going on a while back that no one was really talking about. Um, and, you know, and now that we've opened up about these things, people are starting to say, oh, you should have seen back then it was much worse. What was the it wasn't. Like for a moment? That's why I became a voice because things were amazing and then yeah. got really bad. Um, no, in those days, especially in the 80s and 90s, um, uh, again, you know, 
there weren't all these world markets. There wasn't Brazil. There wasn't, mm. you know, Eastern Europe. A lot of these things, you know, I mean, models came from Sweden. They came from America. They yeah. came from, you know, there were smaller, you know, they still came from all over the world, but it was much more controlled um, about, wh- you know, where they came from. And again, there were less shows. and um, uh, But there was also, there was so much more diversity then. I mean, and there was no such thing as a hierarchy of model, you know, in those days, you know, you needed Christie as much as you needed Veronica Webb, as much as you needed Iman, as much as you needed, you know, Ariane, mm. you know, and like, yeah. there really was, I mean, you look at an old Calvin show from like mid eighties or, you know, there'd be like 50 girls and like half of them were women of color. Right. And that wasn't, and it wasn't because that quote is, it was just like all these girls bought something to the table. And, you know, again, shows them were about performance. So yeah. it was really about what these girls and guys bought. So you right. had to model, there was no such thing as a bad model. Like you were, you know, you had to model. Yeah. Um, uh, so um, okay. So so that that is funny because that makes sense, and yet at the same time in the entertainment industry there were all kinds of terrible things going on that are only now coming out. But anyway, that's a whole subject for another conversation. So you were doing that, and so uh, Gucci was was uh, your second. Yeah. So then the you know the whole Gucci Saint Laurent thing happened, and um, uh, you know that we basically I stayed. You know that uh, uh, I stayed. Oh, I can't remember how many years I stayed with Kevin Cryer, but the same thing, there was a point where I had always, um, I had always, always wanted to work in a magazine, and um, I had kind of grown tired of the show thing. I mean, I'd done it for years, and I, you know, I wanted another challenge, and Kate Betts was going to Harper's Bazaar, and she offered me a position as bookings editor, so I, so I took it, and uh, so for, for two years, I became the, uh, I was bookings editor at Bazaar, and that is kind of when I felt like everything started to change. Explain what bookings editor So basically, my job was um, to basically produce all the shoots in the magazine, from the cover to the high fashion shoots. Um, you know, choose the photographer, choose the models, hair, makeup, the locations, all of that. It was basically yeah. like shoot production, oh, wow. and then you would produce the cover. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I was a Kevin Cry from. Uh, uh, 93 to 99 I still continued to work for Tom mm. while I was at Bazaar but then I stopped doing all the other shows okay. um, and uh, and that was when I noticed the change starting to happen um, all of a sudden we went into this sort of minimal thing um, most American magazines became pop- the mastheads became populated by Brits and foreign people who weren't really so much they didn't think much about diversity because it wasn't part of their culture right and i feel like that is really when you started to see a lot of the magazines lose their ethnicity and then then a lot of these magazine editors for the first time started to style outside the magazines on shows like if you had a powerful stylist who did eight shows those shows that three years ago had all this diversity all of a sudden now were kind of whitewashed and that that is when because of the stylist because of the stylist right, um, right. Be, you know because of the editor and because you know and that mm. is and then would align with casting directors who also maybe weren't American who weren't as right. you know and then the diverse a the diversity and b the the character the whole idea of what the performance that sort of yeah. then it really became about this sort of robotic you know huh. so and that sort of started happening yeah with Jill Sander then it became Prada then it became Right. Balenciaga, it became about this robot thing, and that you didn't really need a girl that had... So it was a styling thing, but then it became more of a cultural thing. 
it became cultural within the business. Not, yeah, I would yeah. not say cultural outside. Yeah, and do you think it was uh, reflecting what the market was after or more personal I think it reflected what choices. fashion was doing, and it was a very insular thing that eventually yeah. spread out. Um, and, I don't, you know, it wasn't intentional for sure, right, right. but it was just, again, like, I find that, especially working with a lot of uh, people from other countries, like, who, you know... It's not even that they had anything against someone of color. They just don't think about it, which is actually... E- but it's, I, I mean, I it was just, just as bad. But. Yeah, I mean, it, we saw this recently in, in with Balenciaga when they're all-white show. Um, but at the same time, my background in the UK, we didn't think so much about color because it hadn't been a problem, you know, in terms of the, the way it's been perceived in the US. It's mm-hmm. like we, we didn't think about color because it was all, it always been a part of our existence, and so we didn't need to to focus on it and you know i'm sure people of color in the uk have had a different experience but it's certainly never alluded to in the way that it is here um so i'm intrigued by that uh, anyway so you are at the magazine and then you start when you start to notice the problem of the whitewashing and and what about the treatment of the models because that's something that's, that's that came later um uh there was just a point where um i also saw the whole celebrity thing come in which i was not on board with i didn't believe in i just never see thing meaning celebrity covers okay um because we were still shooting models when i was at bazaar and you know this was because vogue was doing it now everyone was doing it and i just Mm. found the whole i didn't like working with them i didn't i found it very disheartening that we are putting people on a pedestal that rent cars lease houses and you know uh, borrow clothes and most of these people are not such great people in real life you know acting right. is acting so just because someone can perform a great part mm. does not mean that they're not they're still not a hillbilly from the Ozark Mat. you know they can just yeah. act and all of a sudden now here we are like you know and they're automatically given a ton of credit for things that for things they don't even realize they don't even know you know so I yeah. found that whole thing bothersome so I um, I left bizarre I actually left the business I decided that I'd had enough and wow, um, I person. left Sold my apartment, sold everything. I moved away. Uh, I moved uh, to Pennsylvania for two years. And I know that, in, you know, we've given the things that <coughs> you've been talking about lately more uh, very publicly. It was the treatment of models that, that, that have been really, you know. The, the yeah, well, that was been... what happened when I came because I was gone for two years and yeah. out of it. And then I came back to a completely changed landscape because then what had happened was that um, uh, the stylist thing had really become more that became the norm. So right. instead of a designer, prior to that, a designer who did their own work and had a staff and they did their own looks and their own fittings, mm. now, because everything was becoming public, you know, Calvin Klein, who had two shows a year, now had four shows a year and pre-fall and resorts. So now there were six or seven yeah. collections and there was men's and there was jeans. And, you know, all these companies just exploded on this level where it was just more... So designers couldn't handle... Right. The work on so their own, so they had to. to start bringing people in. Yeah, yeah. So then you would you would get these stylists who'd be like, oh well, I'm here, 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 here now. Yeah. And then in the end, it became instead of just it becoming about like a collective. This is great. We're all doing this thing. It, then it became about power. Right. And it was really like, well, I'm doing these six things, and you know, you're going to do my only six things, and if you do this or you don't do my bad job, because even though uh, you're not getting paid for it, I am. Right. You're not going to work anymore. So that that is when that it started yeah when yeah. i came back and then it just yeah. that is how it started and it just didn't it so, didn't get better so wind forward to 2016 when we uh when we invited you onto our panel mm-hmm. at the first fashion culture design on conference which was titled uh what's what does beauty look like now and we had uh a- ashley graham 
um, Alec Weck, Ivan Bart, the president of IMG Models, uh, you, uh, Gillian Smith, who's uh, someone that does something similar to you, and Mickey Boardman moderating. And what I feel like it, what emerged then was, and I wasn't expecting this, I mean, when we asked you to do it, it's because you have a very strong point of view on inclusion, inclusiveness in, mm. in casting, which is, you know, we have the opposite in some people as well. Um, but you came out with such an impassioned story and, and I used you know the, the various things you were saying particularly about the model who who uh, of color who did a shoot and the photographer didn't want to shoot them so did so without any film in the camera yeah and that was that was when I was a bazaar and that's when I that's when I quit that was yeah. it was that episode combined with you know a whole bunch of things I didn't personally believe in like celebrities and I was just like and you know I we I you know at that magazine we had a lot of problems with editors who didn't want to you know I just it was very shocking to me because I again early in the fashion world there was just no such thing you know right. you had to have Iman you had to have Cre yeah, you had yeah. to have you know there was just no like you know we have enough black girls this year. You know, there was no such thing like that. You just you just shot who you wanted because that's what it was about. And yeah. So then we so we we talked about this at, at Fashion Culture Design in 2016, and then you went on later in that year to talk about it at the Voices Business mm. of Fashion event, which was very moving. Um, and then it, it's sort of become this. And, it, and during Fashion Week in 2017 in February in Paris, um, you made a very strong statement uh, when you commented on the treatment of some models. I think it was at the Balenciaga show. Yes. Um, and it's, you know, I think people would were shocked when they read that. Well, they were shocked. You know, the interesting thing is my, you know, when I spoke at BOF, you know, I, you know, told several stories um, about several of these stylists and casting directors, but I intentionally did not mention their names and just said, you know, my final promise was that if we get back to Paris in March after this and things are going to continue this way, the stories are out there now and I'm going to, you know, yeah. I'm going to start calling you out one by one because mm -hmm. this has to stop. And, um, uh, you know, I didn't really expect, you know, every, a lot of people saw it and a lot of people were like, whoa. Yeah. And, you know, <clears throat> I didn't, you know, and again, I wasn't even supposed to be there. Just something, again, had happened in Paris that was so upsetting to me that I just called Imran and was like, please, like, can we do something? And he's like, well, come, yeah. uh, you know. And so I made the speech. And the interesting thing is that whole audience, they would come up to me after, like, that story was him, this story was her, that was his. You know, and they, all, they knew yeah, who everyone knew was. Who everyone they, was. Everyone yeah, knew. Yeah. So I was just like, well, so you all know. So why aren't we doing something about it? Like, this just goes on. And, like, at this point, but, you know, what started bothering me the most about this behavior is, fine, a power trip is a power trip. But at the end of the day, this constant flood of models that we can stop, this constant flood of people that are too young to be in a business that's too fast anyway, you know, there's a lot of human cost. And, yeah. like, we're ruining people's lives. Like, the business yeah. is ruining and irreparably. I well, mean, that's... The sad fact is that <laughs> when you've got a smaller community and everyone's in charge of what they're doing, which you had in the 80s and 90s, then it sort of polices itself because we're all essentially nice and if someone's behaving really badly, you kind of... They get ostracised and it doesn't work out. But when it grows to the vast scale that it is and you've got these brands with 32 collections a year, they can't have hands-on yeah. to all of it. So as nice as the people that own it might be or the designer or someone, they may not be, but as they could be, they just don't know who these people people are further down the tree because it's such a vast organization and then you've got the bad apples that may produce a nice show but we don't know to what cost and then and it, it, a yeah. huge cost and yeah. you know and in the end they basically hijack the business and i don't 
you know, again, this wasn't about power. You know, for me, the business was never about power. It was about, like, community and fun and, you know, just this whole, you know, kind of the love and the joy of this theater for me. Yeah. And I just watched the whole thing fall apart. And, you know, the same thing a couple of years ago, um, not even just before, uh, I was thinking, like, well, you know, I sold my apartment in New York. I just bought a house in Connecticut. I think I'm going to open a store and leave. Like, I'm just, I'm out of here. And then all of a sudden I thought, you know, before BOF, I thought, why am I leaving? Like, I'm not ready to go, and I still yeah, like what I do. So, like, you know, I'm just going to, I'm going to do what I can to see, you know, to make a last-ditch effort to make a difference before it's time to go. And um, So it seemed like uh, after your comments, after <clears throat> February... Um, there were some changes. Lots. Yeah. And um, the other thing that I do think that has been interesting, even since our talk, mm. um, is that, and that was just the beginning of this whole, like, what is beauty now? I think the thing that has really changed in the last two or three years is that millennials are in the business now. And because, again, because of, the, because of Instagram, because of social media, no one, you know, the gatekeepers have kind of lost. I mean, yeah. fashion has, which is sad, a little sad for me. And it's that, you know, because this business needs a few gatekeepers. Like, yes. just, this business is not meant to be out there in that way. There's nothing aspirational if everyone can see it, have it, and feel it. You know, there has yeah. to be something special. And, you know, in that world, we lose something special by it being so exposed. But, um, uh, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> so the, the gatekeepers and the millennials. Oh, yes, yeah, so we've yeah, kind yeah. of lost the gatekeepers and all that. And what has happened is, you know, a lot of people now want to see themselves represented. So if they don't, they're just going to do their own thing. And I really do think that is what started the rise of Vet Moss, yeah. of Off-White, of yeah. Hood by Air, by Gypsy Sport, by mm -hmm. Vet Moss, all of it. I yeah. do think that was a younger generation saying, like, you're not for me. And well, this you is... know, when I, when I was at Parsons, the, the young people there, they didn't really care about the old guard. It just wasn't on their radar at all. Yeah. They're like, well, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it over here in this way. It doesn't matter to me if there's a big department store in Midtown that doesn't want to buy me. I honestly, I've never been in there. Why would I even want to sell there? And that's going back to sort of the old body map days. Like yeah, they were doing it because they had to do it. And that's <laughs> they're having fun and they had all their friends helping them. And that sort of brings us full circle because I like that. It feels like that's what's supposed to happen. You know, it's so. I just want to finish, James, with um, with, uh, with a little bit about what's you know. We you, you listen. You talked uh, th the three times we mentioned FCD, and then at uh, BOF, and then in uh, after Fashion Week in in February, you talked about the plight of models and the treatment of models. Mm. So, what's happened since then that gives you cause to <coughs> to, to feel good about the, the the way we're moving now? Well, um, the one thing that I think is interesting now is uh, uh, is a. Uh, uh, Models.com had done, uh, well, the interesting thing or the sort of horrifying thing for me is when I made that Instagram post, it was one of those things that when I really, really heard what happened there, I was so horrified that I just, it wasn't like, I'm going to do anything about this. I was just like, son of a bitch, like, yeah, here, you can speak up about it, you know, yeah, yeah. so I did and I never, I just put my phone back away and went back to work and two hours later, someone right. comes down and like, you're going to caring right now. And I'm like, what, why? They're like, do you know what happened? And I'm like, no. They're like, your post went viral. And like, they have really bad internet, yeah. <laughs> Stella McCartney. So I didn't <laughs> like, I have to go down the street to like, so I just didn't know. I went back to work and all of a sudden like, people are like, oh my God. And people are calling me and like yeah. agents and then like press people. Like it just really, it spilled out of control. But then it was the letters I started to get from girls. And right. they found me on Instagram. They found my email. They found mm. my... Facebook, which I've now de deactivated, yeah. but um, 
like there were just I was getting like there was one day I got 1300 letters in like two hours like it was really wow. like I was becoming overwhelmed and like yeah, yeah. and they were crushing and yeah. I you know I just thought this they're telling me this and then and then models.com did a thing about how models should be treated mm. and they allowed the girls to either go on anonymously or speak and 70% of those girls went by name and the thing right. you know and then later this summer when Ulrika Hoyer had also called out what had happened at uh, Vuitton um, <clears throat> normally when things like that would happen a mod you wouldn't get model likes or any yeah, support yeah, yeah. when she did that real models went on and were like you get like so I do right. feel like now people feel they feel empowered they feel empowered and the, that the and they know now like if something goes wrong go on social media because I think yeah. the way a lot of these girls feel now like if you're going to bully me and you're going to take me down mm. you're going down with me so yeah. like if you're wrecking my career I'm going to wreck your career because it, it just takes <clears> one person to chip away at that dam and then and I think that really one. opened and I think going forward <clears throat> uh, I think in the next few months there'll be a big announcement and then uh, uh, it'll be you know like I said that's like I said unfor it, not unfortunately but it has basically become a full time job for me because it really has right. you know working with people talking with people about yeah. how we can make things better and uh, well that's great and it, and it has to happen you know and it of course that doesn't mean it, it's fixed now by a no oh, means no. it fixed oh, no. but at least people can see that there is a light at the end of the tunnel it's like the whole bullying thing you know it's like or, or children coming out when they realize that they're gay it's like it gets better yeah you know you don't and have I to give up I think a lot of these girls and boys realize now like you don't you can tell somebody and they know they can tell me because yeah. even if they're telling me anonymously, they know I'm going to get that information to the person who it needs to get to because now I've spoken, you know, and the fact yeah. that, you know, Francois Pinot met with me and yeah. Antoine Arnaud met with me and they're all like, what can we do to make this better? So and it, that, it's, it's, it, again, that's sort of circular back to the old days when, the, you know, the person in charge was the person whose name was on the label and, you know, they cared. And, you know, Francois Henri Pinot and, and I'm sure the, um, uh, the, the LVMH leadership, they... They don't want this. It's bad for business, above anything else. And they're probably perfectly nice people. I know Francois Henry certainly is. And the last thing he wants is people to be mistreated in, in one of his brands. Well, and the one thing I can say um, from personal experience and from the experience of men, like, you know, it's very hard as a victim of something to speak out. And some people never do. Yeah. And some people it takes many, many, many years. And, um, you know, it's the whole fear. Like, all these girls that could come and tell me these things, you know, in confidence, but at least they could say it now. But now I just feel like in the end, you know, in this world, there's just, I find this new generation is slightly, you know, it's still a lot of victims don't want to speak. A lot of them are yeah. like, I am. And like, you know what? Tough. Like that's, well, yeah, there's, there's and, a double side to that, isn't it? There's the millennial overconfidence with lack of And that's fine because you know what? Because that, I think people have to know now that... Yeah they're not getting away with this anymore. It's mm -hmm. like really, uh, it's, you know, yeah. and I, you know, same thing, uh, you know, that post taught me something incredible just because I had no idea how like one thing could go out to the world yeah. and that really... It defines viral, doesn't it? That's for sure. That I've but never... for good, that's great. Yeah, and, and everyone should know that now because it really, like if... Is that know, post still on your Instagram? It is still on my Instagram. And, and what's still, your Instagram handle? Uh, James P. Scully, I believe. Right. Yeah, so James P. Scully. Take a look at James P. Scully, and it would have been in March. Yeah, March. Right, right, right. 
Well, James, this has been fantastic. I'm truly in awe of, of the fact that you decided, fuck this, I'm going to stand up and say something. And I think you've done a real service and I think you're continuing to do that. And people should look at what you're doing and, and they should connect with you if they want to engage in this conversation. Um, and I'm delighted you were in the first Fashion Culture Design on Conference and thanks for doing the podcast with us. Thank you very it's much. It's been a real pleasure. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, same. Thank you. Well, if you like that, be sure to head over to our website at fashionculturedesign.com for all kinds of loveliness. Oh,